Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome back to the Channel Journeys podcast. Or if you are a first-time listener, welcome. Thanks to all of you. Really appreciate you listening in. This is Rob Spee. I'm your host. I am the founder of Channel Journeys, where I am on a quest for continuous channel learning and helping you achieve channel excellence. Last week, you heard from a CompTIA Channel Advisory Board member, Jason Bystrack. And this week, I have another CompTIA Advisory Board member. This is Angus Robertson. He's the vice chair of the Business Applications Advisory Council. We met out at ChannelCon. Angus is also the chief revenue officer at Axiant, where he was recently promoted from chief marketing officer. Angus and I got chatting about SaaS channels, SaaS channel metrics, and he joins me today to share how Axiant developed or redeveloped and executed their SaaS channel strategy to create a frictionless experience. And he talks about the four key channel metrics that he uses to measure their channel success. Super interesting interview. Let's just jump right in with Angus Robertson. Here we go. Hey, Angus. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Rob. You're welcome. So where are you joining us from today? I'm actually joining you from Indianapolis in Indiana. It's the first time I've been here since I was actually born here, but I'm on my way to Baltimore. I'm going to the Channel Futures show next week, but most of the time I'm based in my home of Denver, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. That's where I was expecting to find you. Well, that's great. So you're back in the hometown visiting old friends? Yes, exactly. So my wife went to school with a friend of hers who lives here now. So we're just hanging out, playing some golf and pickleball. It's the first time I played pickleball. It's actually surprisingly fun and surprisingly good workout. (laughs) That's great. I got to try that. I see a lot of people playing it, haven't given it a shot yet. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us from your hometown on your vacation. Really looking forward to chatting with you. And you and I met, it was, let's see, out at CompTIA's event in Vegas a couple months ago. And we got chatting about some different topics. And it sounded like a really great thing that we could discuss with all the work that you've done at Axiant in mapping out your channel strategy and how you're executing it and what you're measuring. All things that I'm interested in, and I know our audience is interested in too. So and I have a lot of questions about your channel, your even your personal channel journey, because you've worn a lot of different hats in your career, too. So I want to dive into that as well. Sure. All right, great. So why don't we get started with the Axiant story and how you got started there looking at the channel? Because from what you explained to me, and, and I don't know how familiar people are with Axiant and what you guys do, recovery as a service, and you've been formed through a number of or several acquisitions and mergers, right? Yes, that's correct. So there's been about four or five actual acquisitions over the years. Both eFolder and Axiant have been around for more than a, a decade. eFolder was primarily a cloud infrastructure company reselling some of their own IP, but also selling other business continuity solutions. And then just about two years ago, we brought Axiant together with the eFolder and retained the Axiant name because we're focused much more on our own IP and developing our own IP, but only selling through the channel. And that's really mostly through managed service providers. But we ended up having about 
three different solutions or three different products that we sell. One is our SaaS backup solution, primarily around Office 365 called CloudFinder. We also have a secure file sync and share solution, Anchor. And then, of course, we have our business continuity solution, both Axiant Refilbit and Axiant BRC. So did you have three different channel strategies as well? How much did those differ? Yes, it's really interesting. I think there was really primarily two different channel strategies. So eFolder's always been focused on the channel and really working very closely with MSPs, primarily in North America. Axiant originally had, prior to the acquisition by eFolder, had a pretty strong channel strategy, but then shifted, as most MSPs hate to hear and generally don't forget, they shifted to more of a direct mid-market enterprise play, which really uh, didn't work out for them. And that was the reason eFolder was able to to acquire Axiant, because they have some pretty amazing IP around business continuity and disaster recovery as a service. So after that acquisition, there was still really two camps, the original Axiant camp and the eFolder camp. Over time, we've really been able to simplify our approach and really double down on the original e-folder approach and and that channel-only MSP strategy. Were you there at Axiant when they made the decision to to scale back from the channel and go direct? I was not. I was not. That was a few years ago. I'm thankful you weren't there. Do you know what drove that kind of decision? It was the CEO at the time and his belief that in order to drive a large enterprise valuation, especially with a VC-backed company, I mean, I think they raised at least $100 million that they really needed to have a, a direct software as a service play. And obviously, as we've seen from the recent appetite from private equity companies, that certainly proved not to be true, that a lot of channel companies, both on the vendor side and the actual MSP side, have fairly high valuations um, for PEs. So it was a pretty big decision that that CEO made, which led them to not be not be successful. Yeah, a pretty important lesson there to learn. And I know as I talk to different companies and hear from investors, they're looking for that strong channel. It's, it's hugely important because they know how critical that is to the scale of the company. Completely agree. And especially when you're serving small and medium-sized businesses, the channel is a invaluable asset in, as you say, scaling your go-to-market because they can manage those relationships, they can manage support, they can provide value-added services and really deliver something you can't. But it's a great partnership where the vendor can provide industry-leading technology and the channel can provide that amazing service and, and support. So I think it's a really good partnership that's been underestimated for a long time. And in fact, many SaaS vendors still really don't understand the channel. I've only really been involved in the channel for a little over a year. And prior to this, I worked with distribution and telecom that didn't really didn't have as much of an idea around the managed service provider space and, and opportunity and what the capability was. So it's been a, a great learning experience for me as well. Well, you've learned a lot over the last year then, I'd say. Absolutely. No, it's been really great working with folks, uh, Jason Feistrack, who led our channel. Of course, he was at Ingram and, and now at DNH, but partnering with folks like Pax8 and working with some of our large managed service providers and our partner advisory council. And of course, getting really involved in CompTIA through 
our relationship with the compliance group and Mark Haskelson. So one thing that the channel's not short of is is relationships, especially if you're willing to put in the work and, and you have something to offer. Yeah, it is. It's about relationships. And and one of the things I really love about doing this podcast is the the relationships that I've built and the people I've met. And you know, you mentioned Pax A, chance to meet Ryan Walsh and have him on the show and Jason I had on the show just last week. So that's actually a great tie-in with the discussion I had with Jason around the buyer's journey and the changing technology buyer's journey and the role of the different players, the vendor, the distributor, the partners in that journey. You mentioned to me about working with your CEO, looking at the buyer's journey. How did that go about and how did that impact your channel strategy? Sure. I mean, there's two reasons I'm really excited to be working at Axient. One is the opportunity to really learn more and and be a part of the channel. But the second is this evolution or revolution that's happening in how vendors go to market and how vendors sell and how buyers buy. Technology is really significantly changing this model. And I think a company like Atlassian was one of the first to really think about how they go to market in a different way. So from the very get-go, they focused on building what they call a remarkable product. Mm -hmm. In other words, a product that their customers would remark about or remark on. And that's led them to, I think they're 500 million in revenue now, but a 30 billion valuation. And they started with, I think, two guys in college in Australia with $10,000 in credit card debt. So amazing. That focus has, has changed everything. And especially for B2C or B2B, where it's more of a transactional sell. There's this real opportunity to show that early value and get a customer, even if it's at a small deal size, but a customer that is really excited about how you solve their problem and the value you deliver to solving that problem. So that really frictionless experience in terms of entering into initial relationship between the vendor and the customer. And then from there, really focusing on adoption and you know usage uh, throughout that customer. So those are two key areas, showing that pre-sale value and then focusing on that post-sale adoption. So pre-sale value, post-sale adoption, and throughout it, a frictionless experience. Tell me more about that because I we hear a lot, you've got to be easy to work with, you know, with your customers and your partners. What were some areas of friction that you were able to identify and remove? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, our CEO has been with Axiom a little over six months. Prior to that, he was at CRO at Webroot for almost 10 years before they got sold to Carbonite for almost $620 million. Yeah. About six years ago, Webroot decided to really focus on the managed service provider as a channel. And they went from almost no managed service providers a little over six years ago to right around 15,000 today. And I mean, that's phenomenal growth. But but a big reason they were able to do that is by focusing on that that partner experience. So Mm -hmm. one of the things David did when he came in was really get to know our partners, get to know how we worked internally. He very quickly found out that we were doing too much. And we had, we were making it too hard for our partners. So one of the first things we focused on was creating a combined marketing sales and partner success organization that was built around a frictionless buyer's experience. And our job is to make it as easy to buy from us as possible and be able to measure that throughout the experience. And we do that through trials and we can actually 
see if there are any friction points through our unified trial process. And then once we have that framework established in terms of the organization that supports the experience and the mechanism to provide that experience with the trials, um, we're able to measure and iterate. And we work cross-functionally between product management team and select people from onboarding and revenue operations. And there's only about eight of us, but we can really see you know, from qualitative and quantitative feedback what's working, what's not working. And it's so exciting to be able to just quickly work with the product management team to change something and know that that's going to directly impact a partner's experience and just make them that much, their life that much easier and, and them just come away with a more positive experience. It's, it's rewarding. Interesting. And you talked about this combined marketing, sales, customer experience. Is that a combined organization or what did you guys actually do there? Yes, it's a combined organization. And David had enough trust and faith in me to ask me to lead that organization. So I have really five functions. So there's a, a product marketing function, a revenue marketing function, a new logo or new revenue acquisition function. Then there's a, a growth function that's focused on net retention and partner satisfaction. And then there's an operations group that really ties it all together. Because at the end of the day, our ability to make our partners really happy with our experience turns them into the best salespeople we can ever have. Because if they're advocates for us, if they're our champions, if they're saying Axiant's able to solve my business continuity needs and they make my life so much easier, then I'm going to tell everybody else to, to use them as well. That's the key measure at the end of the day is our ability to provide that experience and that satisfaction so that we create advocates for for Axiom. You mentioned to me when we were chatting about having to decide on a North Star, and that's something we're talking a lot about in the company that I'm in as we're mapping out our channel vision and channel strategy and aligning to the, the corporate North Star. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. And David made it. He, he's the guy who really defined, well, as a CEO, defined what our North Star should be. What we did is looked at what's happening in industry and where are we positioned to really take advantage of what's going on in the industry? And so what we saw and what he saw was really that in the world of IT spend, managed service providers are taking a greater and greater share of overall IT spend. So MSPs, because of that model that we just talked about, are in a great position to take more of that spend. And we're seeing that happening in the data. The second other big event that's happening in the market is the disruption of cloud technology. We've talked about it for years, but it's actually happening. We can see that more and more cloud services are being launched and also that over time, those cloud services are taking away share from those on-prem hardware and, and software. So that's really in full force now. So based on those two events, that's what turned into our North Star. We want to build the best business continuity platform with one you know, user experience, really simplified management, billing, enablement, all through one user experience for the MSP to really support that transition that's happening in the market where MSPs are taking more share. And then really focus also on that cloud disruption that's happening. For example, just the growth with Office 365, there's something like more than 180 million commercial O365 licenses now up from right around 60 million just, just three years ago. So that's really our, our North Star to be that preferred business availability platform for MSPs and really just focus on doing that really well, especially in the area of cloud. So you, the MSP is your customer, it sounds like. That's who you focus on. 
That's right. Do you even know who the end customers are of the MSPs? No, we don't. So we don't actually even have to worry about deal registration or anything like that. The MSP is free to sell to whoever they they want to. It's their business. And an MSP stack, you generally have productivity, connectivity, security, and backup. And so we just want to be that preferred backup solution. And however they want to sell it, either as their own brand or if they want to co-brand it with, with Axiant, we, we enable both approaches. And that just gives you laser clarity, doesn't it? In execution, having that distinction and not trying to serve both that end customer and the MSP. You're absolutely right. You cannot underestimate the power of simplicity and focus in just speed of execution. It just makes it so much easier that from a go-to-market standpoint, we're focused on just making the MSP happy managing everything else around that to support that end result. Yeah, I worked for Carbonite, and this was a number of years ago prior to the WebRoot acquisition. And I don't know what their channel strategy is today, but at the time, they were selling direct and while we were building up a channel. And it made a lot of things very difficult. Just you talked about free trials. You know, if a customer can come online and order a free trial, at what point does that get passed on to a partner, if ever? So it, it, it creates a lot of confusion for everyone, including the customer and partners, if you have that dual strategy. So, Rob, to that example specifically, it just so happens next week, Axiant is announcing our lead gen program for our partners. Because while we don't advertise specifically to end users or end clients, we actually do get a fair amount of inbound requests. So demo requests or trial requests that come in from our website by end clients or end users. And so what we do when we get those demo requests or those trial requests is we support those with the end clients, but we do a semi-automated process where we actually have a salesperson qualify the opportunity. And if there's a real opportunity, that opportunity gets assigned to one of our existing MSP partners. And one of the biggest challenges MSPs have is acquiring new partners. So we have a pretty capable sales and marketing engine for business continuity leads and opportunities. So that's a great way of making MSPs happy and building on that loyalty to the Axiom brand. If we can deliver those qualified opportunities to our partners and without really spending a lot of marketing dollars there, we do get a fair number of opportunities every month that we pass over to our MSPs. And so we're going to be doubling down and automating that process even more through our partner portal. Yeah, I think that's an important point you make there because you don't want to give up the marketing power of your own company to uncover leads and potential customers, but creating a frictionless process and that focus that the partners, the MSPs aren't worried that you're going to try to take that business direct. They know you have a 100% channel strategy and you're going to pass that lead to one MSP or another, depending on the situation, right? Yeah, exactly. Because generally speaking, MSPs are not going to have as much horsepower as we have on the sales and marketing side. And they're not going to have as much specialization as we do on the business continuity side. So, you know, we can really help them in, you know, building that brand and bringing that demand or capturing that demand and then routing, routing it back to, to the MSPs. And of course, anytime there's an upsell or cross-sell opportunity at one of our resellers, we benefit. So... You've created your North Star. You're going to be the, the top preferred vendor for the MSPs. You've got a 100% MSP channel strategy. You've made your process frictionless, and now you go on to start executing. Let's talk about the metrics and things that you're tracking 
to know that you're on track or, or off track, what are some of the key things that you found are important as a SaaS company to track in the channel? So I'm one of those marketing guys or sales and marketing guys that really loves operations and measurement. Mm -hmm. And over the years, there's, I think, four metrics that I really focus on and think about. So one is your LTV to CAC ratio. So lifetime value to customer acquisition costs, or in our case, partner acquisition costs. Also looking at your demand waterfall. So what's the quantity of leads that you can bring in and what's the quality of those leads? And then the third metric is really the sales velocity, which is great for measuring that, that quality. And then finally, measuring your ability to create advocates or champions in your customer base or in your channel, and that's through MPS or Net Promoter Score. So those are the four key things that you're tracking to know you guys are, are on track to success. Let's dive into those. I was just going to say, just with regard to LTV and, and CAC, I mean, every year, no matter what size business you are, you're going to be doing some kind of financial planning and budgeting process. And that's really understanding how much do you want to grow? How much profit do you want to generate? For example, a lot of private equity companies follow the 40% rule, which is they like to see a company generate 40% growth or 40% profit or some combination in between. So it could be 20% growth and 20% profit. So it, at the end of the day, it adds up to, to 40%. So we are generally putting our P&L and our, and our growth plan together with that in mind. And then you have to figure out what are the drivers that are going to support that financial model. So where are you going to spend your budget? What programs are you going to spend your budget on? And that's where I use the LTV to CAC ratio. So CAC is pretty simple. It's really just over a period of time, how much are you spending on sales and marketing? And based on that spend, how many new customers or new logos are you acquiring? And then your LTV or lifetime value is three variables. It's looking at your gross margin, your churn, so how many customers you're losing over a, a particular period. And then how much does your customer on average spend with you? So across all of your customers and your total revenue, what's the average per customer? So then you can look at your LTV to CAC ratio. And generally, Anything over three is good or anything over four is really good. So dividing the LTV by the customer acquisition cost. But what's interesting is you can quickly see from those five variables what's healthy. Like you know what a good gross margin should be. You know how many new clients based on your spend you should be able to do. And if any of those is off, then you can focus on one of those five and say, okay, my churn's too high, or my logo acquisition's too low, or my gross margin's too low. You know, what programs do I need to initiate, or where do I need to spend my budget to support getting that metric to where it should be? And I think that's really helpful from a sales and marketing standpoint um, to figure out where you should be spending your budget to support that that PNL. Over what time frame are you looking for change? You know, is this are you looking at this dashboard daily or weekly or monthly, quarterly? What to see trends in that LTV to CAC ratio? Yeah, for me, LTV to CAC, we do because we're a fairly transactional business with a fairly fast sales cycle. It's about 40 days. So we look at it quarterly, but the period we use is is by month. Okay. Yeah. And you have a dashboard where you're looking at these numbers and, and not just LTV to CAC, but the five variables that make it up? Yes. So we can see that close to real time, we're, we're working on getting all those different data sources together in one view. So today, 
we can get them pretty easily, but they end up being in an Excel spreadsheet as opposed to a Power BI dashboard or something like that. So we're working on bringing those pieces together. We're not not too far away, but not quite there. Yeah, that's always the fun part. Yes. <laughs> bringing data sources together from different functions because everybody, well, especially in larger companies, you're going to have a different billing system and different HR system, obviously different CRM, different marketing automation. So how do you get them to speak the same language and present you know, in a way that you can see the information? Yeah, absolutely. All right. On demand waterfall, what kind of key metrics are you looking at from a leads perspective? Yep. So you can go quite granular or you can go a little bit more high level. If you're going to be high level, I think leads and meetings and opportunities and closed one is good, but we generally go a little bit further. So we'll look at impressions and impressions can be just how many people see your ad or look at a post on one of your social media channels and then how that translates into visits to your website how that translates into leads. And then we categorize leads generally in, in two different ways, whether it's more of a thought leadership awareness, nurture type lead, or if that lead is already in a buyer cycle so or has, has a funded project. So they're more in the consideration stage. They're starting to evaluate different vendors. And then how many meetings can you get from that? And then how many opportunities can you get from those meetings? How many demos are you doing? How many quotes are you issuing? And then how much MRR do you get from that? So all of those we do have in one dashboard. And we use Insight Squared, which pulls most of that information from Salesforce. And we have SalesLoft and HubSpot that populate the information to Salesforce. And then it's pulled from Salesforce by Insight Squared and presented visually. So we can see the whole demand waterfall, both in terms of quantity and the conversion. And we can also see how those leads are distributed across the different territories, the different sales teams, and then how that's dispositioned. You know, does each territory have enough to work with and are those leads followed up in the appropriate way and, and converted properly? Mm-hmm. Very nice. All right. Sales velocity. Describe that. How do you measure sales velocity? So sales velocity was introduced to me by one of these next-gen data companies called Node.io. And I love the equation. There's four variables in the equation. So on the top, you have number of sales opportunities you're working in a given period multiplied by the average deal size and then multiplied again by the win rate. And then you divide that number by the length of your sales cycle. So what's really interesting about that is you can look, relatively speaking, what your overall sales velocity is and then compare that to different sales territories or different campaigns. And you can see which campaigns are doing better than others or which territories are doing better than others. And that allows you to say, let's double down, let's do more here because we're doing really well, or let's stop doing this because this is really not working as well. And so that just gives you the visibility to make an informed decision about where you can get the most return. So with the LTV to CAC ratio, you said you're looking at, you want to be a three or better, right? Yeah. As a number. In sales velocity, what kind of number are you looking for? What's good? What's interesting about sales velocity is it's relative. So it just matters. Generally, the way I approach sales velocity is look at it from an overall business and then start to break it down by territory or campaign to see, you know, relative to, you know, the overall number, does a particular territory or, or a campaign do better? And then also you can compare that number over time. So you can say Q2 this year was this number, but a year ago, 
it was 50% better. Why was it so much better a year ago than it is right now? So it just gives you that visibility. So there's no really good or bad answer there. It just depends on your business model and the type of sales cycle you have. Right, right. Okay. And then you can compare, like you said, different campaigns, different regions. Exactly. Yep. Different partners, maybe. Yeah, that too. Okay, great. So then the fourth one, net promoter score, that's a, a big one. You're measuring that. Well, how, tell me, how are you measuring net promoter score? Sure, sure. And just back to what you just said, I think what you just said is really important because you said you could use sales velocity to measure partner capability. It's such an effective metric for determining your ideal partner profile or your ideal customer profile. So what group or what cohort of partners or customers based on demographics, psychographics, technographics, you know, whatever type of graphics, you know, show up, you know, maybe there's a particular vertical or industry or a particular size or, or a particular type of technology they're using where you get a much higher sales velocity. So understanding what target markets or market segments, sales velocity is a really good tool of, of narrowing that down and, you know, where, where you have the best fit or best focus. Yeah. And net promoter score, you may be applying that same process for comparison of what cohorts of where you're seeing a better MPS. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. You're exactly right. So MPS is a, I think uh, Bain Consulting came up with this originally, but it's a score that's calculated from zero to 10, where only nines and tens are actually promoters, sevens and eights are passives, and then zero through six are actually detractors. And what you do is you send out a survey to your customer base, and your goal is to get between 10 and 20% response rate. If you're able to get above 20%, that's really good, but you should at least get close to, well, at least 10%. And what you do is you look at the number of people who were detractors, so scored you at either a zero or a six, and then the number of folks that scored you at a nine or a 10, and divide the number of nines and tens by the total. And the numbers, number of zeros through sixes by the total, and then subtract the detractors from the promoters, and you get your net promoter score. And it can be all the way from a negative 100 to a positive 100. And generally speaking, this does vary by industry, but anything above 50 is world class. So companies like Apple are above 70, I think. And that's when you start getting into these fanatics that <laughs> go around saying that Apple's the best thing that you could ever buy and they won't hear any negative word about it and just keep telling you to buy, buy, buy. So that's a really great... Sleeping on the sidewalk for a week for your latest product. Exactly. The one thing I forgot to mention, the most important thing is the question that you ask on that survey is you ask your client or your customer, how likely would you recommend our product or service to a friend or colleague? And that's what they score you on. And it's just a really simple question. And that's the only mandatory question. And then there can be an optional, you know, two or three additional questions that ask for a little bit more feedback on the specific product or service that you're offering. But it's such a powerful, it's so simple, but it's so powerful because then you can follow up on those nines and tens and they're already out there helping you sell your product or service. And so you can do case studies or have them speak on webinars, but then also you can reach out to those zeros through sixes and find out why they're unhappy. And I've been on calls with zeros where they've been really, really unhappy. And by the end of the call, they're very happy and they want to buy more. 
So, you know, people who score you a zero are generally very passionate, you know, and feel very strongly. And so if you can convert them to promoters, they can be really great advocates. I was listening to a podcast this morning with Tiffany Bova, and she was talking about, you know, different metrics. And and she was talking about churn and mentioning that, well, if you're measuring churn, it's important, but it's really looking in the rearview mirror. What you ought to be looking at is forward indicators of churn. And, and NPS was one of the main ones that she mentioned. That's really interesting. I'm going to have to listen to that podcast because we're working on those leading indicators right now and actually creating a health score for our partners that uses NPS and uses a few other metrics, including how the last quarterly business review or check-in went and what the sentiment was. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And Tiffany's absolutely right. Being able to understand those leading indicators so you can get ahead of potential churn, that's really important to know. Because when you first mentioned the four key things that you were measuring, it struck me that you weren't measuring churn, or at least you didn't mention churn as one of them, but you have something even better. I'm sure you're tracking churn, but you have something that's more of a leading indicator that you can then make that phone call and prevent them from churning before they even drop. Yeah. And and we do measure churn. It's one of those three variables in the lifetime value, the churn numbers in, in there. Yeah. So it's important to us, but both the leading and the lagging indicator, we care about both. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, it's in there. Well, this is fantastic stuff. And I, I think it's hugely helpful for SaaS companies who are building out their channel strategy and looking to what kind of metrics can they measure. I'm certainly learning from this. Let me jump over, Angus, to your your personal channel strategy, because I found it fascinating looking at your background, how you went from programmer to product marketing to more broader marketing and then marketing leadership roles. And now you've jumped into this all-encapsulating CRO role. It's quite a fantastic journey. How Can you talk to it a little bit? Sure. So I always was passionate about tech. It was just so exciting to me how technology could just dramatically change our lives and open up so many new possibilities. And so programming just seemed a natural thing to get into. And then from there, I moved into IT. I was always, even on the programming side, more into sort of the DevOps and QA side, which didn't really exist as, as much back then. So that was sort of a natural transition for me into IT. And then I was at the University of Georgia working in IT for just about four years, but I was ready to, you know, move into more of the engineering side. And what's funny is I thought I was getting an engineering job in Hawaii working for a telecom startup, but it was actually a marketing job. It was a product management job. This was in the middle of 2000 when everybody was hiring like crazy and there was a pretty low bar for for getting in. Angus, you didn't care what job you were getting. You were moving to Hawaii. Yeah, that was part of it. I actually, without ever being to Hawaii, sold everything, just had three boxes and showed up and didn't even have a place to live. But it was, uh, you know, mid-20s and and just a great opportunity. And it turned out, you know, I had a product management job and working with industry influencers. so standards bodies like ITF and IEEE and some of the leading media in the telecom space. So it was uh, a really amazing experience. It then transitioned into services. So I was at that telecom company for about 14 years. And through that, um, got into services and sales and marketing, and then actually did some business development in Asia, living in Hong Kong. And then from there, helped out with some M&A, acquired a software company in Mountain View, moved back to the Bay Area. And then from there, Ended up leading product marketing for about half of the business for product lines. And then I sort of saw the writing on the wall and I was telecom 
was an amazing growth industry for a long time, but definitely matured. And it's much more of a, a commodity now. And there's there's less innovation there. There's there's still innovation, but software just seemed to be where it was at. So I went to work at a couple of software companies that were startups and VC backed, and that was again a great experience. And then you know, of course, ended up here at Axiant with the opportunity to work in the channel and really double down on this uh, flywheel flywheel experience. But tech is just an amazing space and amazing opportunity to have that possibility of taking a journey like that. Yeah. It can create great adventures and you've taken advantage of it. And you learned some languages along the way, right? You told me you you speak French and Mandarin. Yeah, I speak a little Mandarin. I speak a little French. Yep. That was fun too. It was uh, cool being in some of those meetings and having an idea of what was going on in in China. It definitely changes dynamics and gives you, as you know, uh, a different perspective on, on the culture. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fantastic. And then you have started learning the language of the channel really just recently. I have people on the podcast who've been in the channel for you know hundreds of years, it seems like. We've been in it forever. When did you join CompTIA? Did that play a role in, in your education of the channel? Yes, it really had a dramatic effect on my understanding of the channel. I really didn't know much about CompTIA. I'd worked with industry associations and forums and standards bodies before, so I knew the capability of of different trade associations. But one of our go-to-market strategies is really to partner with the different vendors in the security and compliance and also productivity and connectivity arenas that MSPs sell that are really doing well. And so one of those companies is the compliancy group and the CEO of the compliancy group is Mark Haskelson. He said, Angus, you should really get involved in CompTIA. And Mark co-chairs one of the five councils, advisory councils in CompTIA, the Business Applications Advisory Council. So it was really because of Mark Haskelson at Compliance Group that I got involved in CompTIA. And it just really opened my eyes, just how big the channel was and how much there was going on in the channel. CompTIA is actually the second largest body issuing certifications worldwide after Microsoft. So they really have a big impact and getting together four times a year with other channel leaders like Ryan Walsh at Pax8, Jason Beistrack, Mark Haskelson, Nelly at, at SAS yeah. uh, really opens your eyes and you can just see, uh, learn so much about the different strategies everybody is employing and really what is a, a challenge or a priority for the channel right now. Yeah, Nellie Scott's a firecracker. She worked on my team at SAS and I should get her on the show, really. She's, she's fantastic. She absolutely is fantastic. Yeah, I really, she's the other co-chair with Mark at the CompTIA's Business Applications Advisory Council. So I get a chance to work with them both and I've learned a lot from both of them. Excellent. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, Angus. Is there anything that we missed that you had hoped to talk about? No, this has been phenomenal. Again, Rob, I really appreciate you inviting me on. I, I love talking about business and the different metrics around business. And now that I'm learning more about the channel, how you know we can really support the channel and help help the channel grow and be more effective. Excellent. Any advice out there for SaaS companies that are looking to build a channel or, or looking to accelerate their channel? I think most SaaS companies don't know what they're missing because they really just don't understand the power of the channel. So any SaaS company that is looking to really focus on small and medium-sized business the channel, especially managed service providers, is a phenomenal opportunity, and it's still underserved, especially in the arena of SaaS. So if you have a SaaS product that doesn't have 
high penetration in the MSP and not a lot of competition there, it's a way for you to really differentiate. So I think there's a big opportunity for many SaaS vendors. Well, amen to that. I wholeheartedly agree. Well, that's a great place to wrap it up, Angus. Thanks again for joining us. A lot of great content here. And I hope to run into you again soon. I, I won't be at that event that you're heading to, but hopefully I'll find you at another one coming up soon. Yeah, that sounds great. I look forward to it as well, Rob. Thanks again. You're welcome. All right. Take care. All right. That was fantastic. Thank you, Angus. It's amazing how much he has learned and done in the channel in such a short time. I really love his four key metrics for measuring channel success. Be sure to visit my website, channeljourneys.com. Go to backslash CJ37 for all the show notes. So that's channeljourneys.com backslash CJ37. And I'll recap each of his channel metrics there for you as well. Also, while you're at the website, go to the homepage, check out my new free course on how to build a SaaS channel. Would love for you to take that and, and give me your feedback. Also, I hope you found this podcast and all the others super interesting and also a bit of fun. And if you did, please leave a positive rating and review on iTunes or wherever you may be listening to this show. That will help continue to grow the audience and get more channel pros listening, and we can continue to propel the channel. I have some really amazing channel influencers coming up in future episodes. You don't want to miss those. So join me again in two weeks. And until then, have a great channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.